doesn't sound very excited. Yes, okay, excellent. So we are going to do Communion Sunday today. So that's our first communion, and I, uh, I'm actually very excited to uh, kind of lead us through that, but we're going to do that uh, after the sermon, towards the end of our worship. I just wanted to tell you, because if you're one of our younger ones with us today, that means today is Family Sunday, and we are excited to have you worshiping with us today. Next week, we'll go back to Children's Church, uh, but for this week, we, uh, we are blessed to have you with us, worshiping uh, with us. So uh, today we are between sermon series. We've just finished up the Advent series, working through how Jesus, the Son of God, became a human being for our sake. Uh, and before we begin our next one, we're, we're going to take a pause and just have one sermon today. Uh, and so that's always tough for me. I'm I'm like, okay, give me a section of the Bible to preach. I can do that. But when you give me the whole Bible, sometimes I try to preach the whole Bible. It never ends quite well. So I've narrowed it down. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 today. We're going to be at the end of that, verses 10 through 20, which for many of you will be a familiar text. It's the armor of God. Uh, and, and as I was... Um, praying and reading my Bible, deciding what I wanted to preach to you in, in your first Sunday of this new year, uh, I want to explain before we dive in kind of why I picked this passage. So this is a time of year that is just naturally built into our calendars, which serves as time to reflect. How has our last year gone? How have we seen God show up and bless us in amazing ways? How have we struggled? And to look forward, how would I like to change in this next year? What things would I like to see happen? What am I trusting God for? And it's a natural rhythm to just be reflective. And so as I was reading, I spent a lot of time in the letters of the New Testament as I was thinking uh, about you guys and praying for you guys. And, and as I was doing that, a couple of things popped up. One was I just noticed how often Paul and even uh, Peter and John and the others just thanked God for the people they were writing for. And I, and I wanted to make sure, uh, I, I hope I do this often, but I want to take this time especially to just say like how thankful I am to be your pastor in just a couple of specific ways as I was reflecting on that. And, and one of the ways is... Um, one of the benefits of being a pastor is I get to hear how God is working in your guys' life in a way that not everyone gets to hear. So whenever you guys are wrestling with how to share the gospel with your neighbors, that may not be something everyone knows, how the, how the gospel is going forth in our church. But I get to hear that because whenever you share the gospel, you're like, oh, I want to do that better. You often come to us. And so I'm thankful for a church that has this past year taken the call to make disciples and share the gospel with their neighbors. Seriously, I've seen you guys wrestle with that and come to us as we join you in prayer for your neighbors and for your family members. Another way I've been blessed to be your pastor is, is I have a lot of friends from seminary who went to other churches, and many of them are in churches they love and are blessed by. But over the last couple of years, it's been hard on the churches. But I am blessed to serve a church who has come through the last few years of turmoil and still are here. <laughs> We're still here, alive as a church, and thriving and loving each other well. And I'm very thankful for that. Another, and the, the final one I want to say for today, way I've been blessed by you as a church, is you guys are incredibly good at welcoming in people into our church and making them feel welcome 
and loved. I see when new people come, it's not just me or Joe or the elders or the deacons going around them. It's everyone kind of swarming them in, which is possibly intimidating, but in a good way. You guys just bring them into the church, and I love seeing that. And I even got to see that um, this past summer when when uh, my fiance Nicole moved here. You guys sur- uh, surrounded her, brought her in, made her feel a part of the church. Uh, and not just as Josh's, Pastor Josh's fiance, but she has her own friendships here, and, and she's been loved well, and I appreciate that as serving your church. Um, but as I was thinking through, what would be my prayer for you guys going into this year? And, and where do I want to um, kind of plead with God for you? I came to this passage in Ephesians. Now, it's a familiar passage. Many of you, if you've grown up in church, grew up hearing about the armor of God. And in your head, you have this idea of the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, and the knee pads of fasting. You guys didn't catch that one. Come on. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll help you review it. We'll help you review some of this uh, Awana stuff later. We'll have, we'll have our Awana director help you up. But the point is you grew up with this idea of spiritual warfare, and this passage is all about standing strong as you fight against the spiritual forces of this darkness and in this world. And you have this idea of warfare in the spiritual realm. And so we're used to hearing about that, but a lot of us aren't used to hearing that in the context of Ephesians, where it is written. You see, Ephesians is all about, it begins with all about what Jesus did for us, how he became a human being for our sake. He lived the perfect life that we could never live for our sake. He died and rose again so that we might have our sins forgiven and be given a new life. And therefore, every spiritual blessing is ours through Jesus. And so after knowing this beautiful truth, we're then called to live life accordingly. And what that means is to live in a peaceful way among our fellow Christians where we love each other and we encourage each other. And then in our home lives for wives to love and submit to their husbands and husbands to love and serve their wives and children to love and obey their parents and parents to love and disciple up their kids and to go to work and to work as if you were serving God and not a human being. In other words, basic, ordinary life that has been transformed by the message of the gospel. And then right after that, Paul jumps into this talk about spiritual warfare where you're wrestling with the powers of darkness. And most people hear that and they go, that's a strange leap. Why did he suddenly change topics? Why did he go from like ordinary, just everyday, kind of mundane life to spiritual warfare? And what I want you to see today is that he did not change topics. What Paul and what the Spirit actually through Paul is trying to show us is that If you want to fight against the devil, if you want to embarrass the devil and show off the glory and beauty and power of God for us, then what you do is you love and serve your wife, husbands. You you submit to and love your husband, wives. Children, what you do is you obey your parents. Workers, what you do is you work as for the Lord, so you work hard and you work faithfully and you don't complain. Employers, you treat your employees with respect and you take care of them. And when you do this, you stand strong in spiritual warfare. That's what Paul's trying to show us. Why? Well, as you read the New Testament, what you see is that God's power and beauty 
and the transformative power of the gospel is showed off in ordinary lives. Right? The gospel has spread to the far corners of the globes by ordinary people living ordinary lives transformed by the gospel. And as they do that, they share the gospel and how their lives were transformed to their friends and to their neighbors and to their co-workers and to their families and the gospel spreads person person to person. And the kingdom of God advances, right? And so many of us that hearing that usually has two reactions. One is this reaction of like, that sounds boring. I want to live an exciting, meaningful life where I do great things for God. And the other one is, is it's more of a lazy response. Like, okay, that's good. I kind of want to just do my thing anyways. I'll let God do the work. I don't have to worry about it. I just stay home, watch my TV, do the things that I want to do. More of a kind of just a relaxed response. But both people are blind to the power of the gospel in an ordinary life. Because what is going on here is that when you live a life transformed by the gospel, and as you do that, you share the gospel with your friends and neighbors and families, God's kingdom advances. This is how he upends the world around us. Right? Yes, there are moments in history like the Reformation and revivals and other things where we see God show up in these incredibly big and powerful ways. But as someone who actually loves church history, I know that's weird, but who loves church history, I can tell you that those big things, as important as they are, are only really important because God was doing a gospel transformation in hundreds of thousands of ordinary lives. And because of that, when he showed up in these big ways, it rippled out in all these ordinary people's lives in a way that was transformative. In other words, as we do the ordinary life well, God will show up and do the big things and the powerful things and the miraculous things. So with that in mind, I want to dive in with you today to the armor of God. And my hope for you is, as you're looking at your last year and you're looking forward to this new year and you're asking, how do I live my life in response to the gospel? How do I live it more in line with what the Bible is teaching me? I want to show you how we are to do that, what the Spirit is saying in Ephesians 6. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to be reading from Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. So this is what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim 
proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, I pray that we would listen closely to your word, and I pray that those here today, if they do not yet know the gospel and receive the gospel, I pray that they do that, that their lives may be transformed. For those of us today who have been transformed by your gospel, I pray that we find encouragement here and that we might find strength in you to stand firm and that we might expectantly watch as you work in the lives of those around us to spread the gospel and to transform lives. And I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So if you were, um, as we were looking at this text and we're asking a question, okay, how do I live this life described in Ephesians chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6? How do I live a life where I, if I'm a husband, love my wife well? If I'm a wife, love my husband well? How do I live this ordinary Christian life? Uh, and, and as we dive in, I want you to notice one thing first, and that is this. Right here at the beginning of verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in who? Right. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of Whose might? The Lord. The first thing I want you to notice is that this ordinary Christian life cannot be lived by your own willpower and strength. But the good news is it doesn't have to be. When we talk about living a Christian life, what we're called to do is live that life in the strength of God himself. And we see that as we keep reading. It says, put on the whole armor of God. In other words, this whole next section that is describing how we stand firm even though we have an enemy working against us, the only reason we stand firm is because we put on the armor that God gave us, his armor. In fact, very much his armor even in an interesting way. Um, as Paul is writing this, he's writing this as a prisoner, and so he, I'm sure he is looking at a Roman guard, and he's using that as some inspiration, but it also doesn't come out of nowhere. If you read through some of the Old Testament, uh, and specifically, if you'll humor me by uh, keeping your thumb in Ephesians 6, but turning to 2 Samuel with me, uh, verse 23, and, or sorry, chapter 23, and verse 10, what you'll see here described is the armor, sorry, wrong, wrong place. That's a, that's a, I should write my notes better. Turn to Isaiah, <laughs> turn to Isaiah chapter 59, a very different Isaiah 59, uh, verse 17, it is describing the coming Messiah who we know to be Jesus. And this is how it describes him. It says this, um, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a seal as a cloak. Does that sound familiar to you? Because it should. Right? Yes, Paul is using the Roman soldier as an inspiration to write this, but he's also pulling from the Old Testament. And so when we are given the armor of God, it's quite literally his armor that he gives to us to stand firm. This is Jesus's helmet. This is Jesus's breastplate. Right? And so when we live the ordinary Christian life, we must do it in the strength of God. That's the first thing I want you to notice. But the second thing I want you to notice, and this is my first point today, is, is as we're looking at dressing up in the, this um, clothes for warfare, right? Standing firm in battle, 
you naturally want to ask, okay, but who am I battling against? Who is my enemy? Who do I need to stand up against? And the way you answer that question changes many, many things, right? And Paul, knowing that, and the Spirit through Paul knowing that, makes sure that we do not miss who our true enemy is. Look with me. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is it saying here? It's saying that human beings are not your enemy. And I know we've probably heard this verse before, many of you, and and, and you recognize that in your head. But let's think about what that actually means. That means that... If you're looking at living the Christian life, what stands between you and living faithfully in Jesus is not a human being. Right? What that means is your fellow Christian who made you angry, who hurt you in a deep way, maybe because you were too sensitive, or maybe for real things. Maybe they they sinned against you. They gossiped against you. And then that gossip spread and, and your friends believe this gossip and you're deeply hurt by it. What the Bible is saying here is the person who did those things to you is not your enemy. Right? This is not an easy verse to understand. Or it's easy to understand, but it's not an easy verse to actually live out because sometimes if you look around you, it's very, very tempting to think that other human beings are your enemy. Or think about your family members, right? Think about the difficult family members. If, if, you're, if you don't know who that is, think about, okay, this past Christmas, this past New Year, when you went to go see your family, who were you anxious about being there? Who you're like, oh, they're going to be there. I know I have to love them, but man, I wish they wouldn't come, right? They are not your enemy, right? are many of us this year, I know, um, speaking with you and praying with you, have been increasingly concerned at the culture around us and the way, the direction this country maybe is going in our politics or in our local leaders and our culture makers. But guess what? They are not your enemy. Politicians are not your enemies. Governors and presidents and senators and, and voters for people you would never vote for are not your enemy. They're human beings. What that means is we're not called to battle against them, right? Even when it feels like they're battling against us. That's a difficult thing to do. How are we to respond to them then? When they are seemingly attacking us for our beliefs, hating us for our beliefs, and even injuring us, causing us pain and harm, are we Are we not supposed to fight back? Well, what this verse seems to be saying is they're not your enemy. They're not the ones you're battling against. So how do we respond to our enemies? And to this, I think we need to go back to Jesus' teaching. How do we respond to our enemies? Well, we love them and we pray for them. If our enemies are human beings, if people we see coming against us, then how do we respond to them? Well, we love them and we pray for them. And then we stand firm. Right? Human beings are not your enemies. We do have an enemy, though. Right? 
We do have an enemy. I don't want you to go out into the world believing that the only thing standing in the way between you and and a good Christian life is just circumstances or maybe your own willpower. No, there's someone actively working against you living the Christian life. And if you don't realize this, you're going to be overwhelmed because if someone's doing battle against you and you are not fighting back, it ends badly for you. I know the, the, the saying they always had in wrestling and in football and many other sports, uh, a good de- the best defense is always a good offense, right? Uh, and, and so it's kind of this idea if someone is attacking you and you're just standing there, it's not going to end well for you. So if you don't realize you have an enemy, it's not going to end well for you either. There's someone actively working against you and living a faithful Christian life. It's not going to be easy. And in fact, that's why Paul is urging the Ephesians to stand here. Uh, look at, if we keep reading, we see the urgency he says. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. What Paul is urging them to do is just stay faithful. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy. But all you have to do is stand. And as I was reading this, one of the commentators I was studying through brought up this story from an Old Testament, which I think you guys should go read later. That is 2 Samuel, by the way, from 2 Samuel 23. Uh, but there's one of David's strong, uh, uh, elite fighting units called the Eleazar. And it said, as the Israelites fled, he stood alone against the Philistines and fought and fought and fought. And he kept fighting all day to the point where his arm, it said, froze on his sword. And if you, any of you have ever worked manual labor with tools, uh, you've probably experienced this at one point in your life where you've been working hard all day that you literally have to kind of take your fingers and uncurl them. This is the type of faithfulness and endurance that is being urged here is, I know it's going to be difficult, but stand, keep standing. And this isn't an offensive battle that's being described. It's just saying, be faithful. No matter the attacks that come with you, keep loving your wife well. Keep loving your husband well. Keep discipling your kids. Keep working hard as unto the Lord well and show people the gospel and tell people the gospel. Just do that. Just the basics. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. That's what's being urged here. But thankfully, once again, I want to remind you, we're not doing this in our own strength because that would we're doing it in, by being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like to stand firm, to be able to, no matter the attacks that are coming against you, to be able to live faithfully? Well, um, like I said again, one, recognize who our enemy is. Not attack the wrong enemy. Not biting and attacking other people who are human beings. Not and certainly not doing that among fellow believers within the church, right? That's why uh, so many of these letters, if you're reading the New Testament, urge peace among Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, Can you imagine a battle, right, where the soldiers are fighting amongst themselves and doing battle with each other? It's not a good discipline army, and it's not going to end well for them. And so here we're urged to recognize who our enemy is and not to fight against flesh and blood. Our job with flesh and blood is to love them and to point them to the gospel. 
part, but we do have an enemy. And how do we stand firm against this enemy? Okay, so we're going to keep reading. Therefore, starting in verse 13 again, take up the whole armor of God that you will be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. In other words, how do we live a faithful Christian life despite having an enemy who is working against us? And not just an enemy, if we notice the descriptions, these are enemies with authority. In other words, our enemy for a period of time has been given power and control over this world. And he has arranged this world in such a way that it works against you if you're trying to live a faithful Christian life. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when, if we look around us, sometimes sinful behaviors get rewarded and faithful behaviors get punished. Well, of course not, because we have an enemy who has authority, right? Now, it's not ultimate authority. Like these enemies, even though they are the authorities uh, of evil, even though they're the powers of darkness, they still ultimately answer to God. They're only giving authority in as much as God allows them, and only that in a way that ultimately works together of God's children in the long run. So yes, in this present time, living faithfully for God may appear to be punished, and living sinfully may appear to get rewarded. But what we have to do is live in faith knowing that God, the ultimate authority, will make in the long run all of this work together. If you live a faithful life in God, that will be rewarded. Right? If you live a sinful life now, that will ultimately be punished, even if it doesn't look like that in the current lifetime. And so how do we stand firm? Well, we put on the armor of God. And so the, what I want you to notice with me, I'm going to read you these first three pieces of the armor, and I want you to notice something interesting about it. So, Verse 14 says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What I want you to notice here is the past tense of the verb have. Look at that. It doesn't say put on these things. It says having put them on. In other words, the assumption is, is that if you are a Christian, a child of God, then you already have the breastplate of righteousness. You already have the belt of truth, and your feet are already shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. We have already been given this uh, to us in God, and so we're being reminded, you already have this. Remember this and stand firm. Now, what, what are these things? Well, the first thing you understand is this belt here is the thing that holds everything and if you look at the Christian life, what holds your life of faithfulness and God together starts off with truth. It's simple, the truth. If you are a Christian, then the truth is on your side. Right? And, and, and if you look back, you'll notice in chapter 5, they've already been encouraged to live a life of truthfulness. So actually, chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. The depiction here is we are going to be tempted to lie. We're going to look out at this world that is under control of the spiritual forces of evil, our enemy, and we're going to say, hey, lying is actually going to be the best thing to do right now. It's actually going to pay off here. 
But what we are being encouraged is if you are a follower of God, you must stand firm in truth. Truth is what holds everything together. Even in the short term, it may look like lying pays off. Trust me, stand firm, hold to truth. Dismiss lies, don't give in to myths, or lying, or fables, or superstitions. You must stand firm in the truth, and it is the truth that holds everything together, right? In other words, to be really practical, what does that mean for us as Christians? It means that we must get really good at discerning truth from falsehood, lies and fiction from truth. How do we do that? Well, we have a source of truth, right? How do we make sure our belt is tightened, so to speak, as Christians? Well, we learn the truth by reading the truth again and again and again. We read the Bible over and over. We read deeply in the Bible. We memorize the Bible because this is our source of truth. And when we do that, we learn to distinguish truth from error. God's Spirit begins to work in us and tell us what the truth is. And therefore, we don't become tempted to give in to myths and superstition and lies. Instead, we are grounded in the truth with which holds up the rest of our lives, right? The next thing that we already have is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What is the breastplate of righteousness? Well, the first thing I want you to remember is that this is not our armor. Therefore, this is not our righteousness. What happens when Jesus became a human being, lived a perfect life, and then died for our sake is this. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our sinful life, Every single sinful action that we had committed and that we will commit, God already knows that, and he put it on his son, Jesus. And when Jesus died, he paid for all of it, wiping the slate clean. But he didn't just clean the slate. He stacked the deck in our favor because Jesus' righteousness, while he took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. The Bible describes us putting on Christ, putting on Christ's righteousness many times in the New Testament, almost like the clothing, and that's what we have here. We are to stand firm against the devil by remembering that our righteousness is not actually ours. It is given to us by Christ. He has already lived a perfect life for us, and that means two things. One thing, it means this. When you mess up, when you fail to live faithfully as you should, and you you feel that regret and that remorse and that conviction because you're a child of God and and you don't want to sin, you don't linger in that sorrow and regret. Instead, you go quickly to repentance, remembering that in Christ, in God's eyes, you are already wearing Christ's righteousness. Satan can't wound you and harm you and keep you down because you recognize, yeah, I sinned, but guess what? My righteousness is Christ's righteousness, and it holds even still. The other thing it does is it it keeps you from believing kind of the other lie. One lie is that I have to, with my own strength and my own willpower, live a perfect life and that if I mess up at all, I'm in trouble. But that's one error. The other error is to go, oh, well, if I have Christ's righteousness, that means I can just do whatever, right? Christ already did it. I can enjoy sin, right? And we we see Paul address that in some of his other letters. He's like, well, if, if when sin abounds, grace abounds, shouldn't can't I just keep on sinning? And Paul's like, no, you're missing the point. Having the righteousness of Jesus, the breastplate of righteousness, keeps us from that error too. 
It shows us the price that was paid for sin in the first place. It shows us the harm and the evil that sin caused, and it repulses us from it. And we, in God's strength and in Jesus' righteousness, live a faithful life that avoids sin and pursues righteousness. We do that uh, very practically. How does that look like for me, right? Well, one way for me, uh, living out Jesus's righteousness and not my own, is when, whenever I feel like I've been hurt by someone, whether it's they've actually sinned against me or whether it's my own um, misviewing a situation, the temptation is to strike back. In my anger to push back, I was hurt, now I will hurt you. And I know the Bible says to forgive and to turn the other cheek and to offer the same grace I have received, but it's really hard. But in those moments, the only way I can actually do the right thing is if I remember that in Jesus I am already righteous. In Jesus I have already received overwhelming grace. And so then it is my privilege to offer that grace that I have received to someone else in that moment. Right? That's one way practically you can live out the righteousness of Christ. You can uh, have the breastplate of righteousness on you. It's when you live faithfully, it's not you living it for yourself. It's Jesus living it in you. Jesus's grace lived out through you. Jesus's righteousness lived out through you. I know on my own that's not what I would choose, but because of the overwhelming grace I've received, I can give that grace to others. That's how I'm thinking through this breastplate of righteousness. And then it says this, And as your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The image here is going into battle. Your feet matter, right? Now, if you have ever played a sport, uh, or if you've been a soldier, you already know this, right? Like, imagine being on a football field in this muddy, muddy field, and you're slamming against other people barefoot. It wouldn't work out well. Just slipping, sliding around, it would just take one person to step on your foot, and you're done. You're out of the game. And that's the idea here. If your feet do not already have the gospel of peace on it, you're not going to survive out there on a battlefield. One wound to your foot, and you're out. But thankfully, this is one of the armor pieces we already have. So what does that look like in our lives? It means this, that we recognize the peace we have with God. It's kind of what I said with the, with the righteousness already. Whenever we live our lives, we are not trying to live our lives faithfully in order to gain God's favor. Because our feet are already shod with the gospel, we know we already have God's favor. Our life isn't spent striving and, and worrying and fretting and straining to earn God's favor with the hope, maybe, maybe I can, I can earn eternal life. No, you have it. It's given to you freely as a gift. Your relationship with God cannot be affected. In other words, you're going into battle knowing you've already won. Right? That's what we're doing here. It means that when we go about living our lives to be faithful to God, it's going to be difficult. We're going to slip. Sometimes we're going to fail. But we already know in the long term the battle's over and we've won. Yes, I might have failed to love my wife well, to disciple my kid as I should have this week, but guess what? In Christ I am already made perfect, and God will complete. 
He has saved me. He is saving me. He will finish saving me. Right? And, and even though I'm not the person I want to be yet, I will be. That's a done deal. If you are a Christian, that's a done deal. You will be made perfect, fully and completely. And so we can go into battle with this confidence. And when we have peace with God, so much of Ephesians is spent lingering here. That means we can have peace with our fellow Christians. The fact that um, the fact that there is infighting within a church is not a good thing. What the Bible says repeatedly is that there are a couple signs that people looking at us as Christians will see and go, oh, that's Jesus, that's Christ. They will see Christ in us. And one of those ways is the ways we love our fellow Christians. New Testament repeatedly brings this up. How will they know you're a follower of Jesus? By the way that you love one another. In other words, the way you treat your fellow Christians, the way you receive and offer grace, the way you serve one another selflessly without looking for return, the way you encourage, the way you confront sin with gentleness, this is all reflecting Christ to a world who doesn't yet believe in him. And we are either making Christ beautiful with our actions or we're lying about him. And so because we have peace with God, though, we can have peace with one another. Because no matter what a fellow Christian does to you, no matter how harmful or hurtful, guess what? It's not worse than what you've done to Jesus already. And if you've been offered grace, then you can give grace in return. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying there won't be times where you have to set boundaries for someone who repeatedly continues to sin against you. But I am saying that we can offer grace because we've received it first. And so because we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. Now as we move beyond these um, armor pieces that are already on us, then we are then urged to take up certain armor pieces. So look with me at verse 16. It says this, in the readiness given, sorry, uh, verse 16, in the, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can dis- extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay. So this is the idea here, right? Like living faithfully, you already have everything you need in Jesus, but you also have an enemy, right? It's not just standing firm against nothing. It's standing firm against an enemy. And there will be times that our enemy makes it hard to live faithfully. So thinking back to the context that's written in, there will be times where it will be hard to love our spouses well. We will think that they have betrayed us or hurt us or they aren't doing their part. Or maybe there's external circumstances that the enemy puts into our life. And it's difficult. And in those moments, it's incredibly hard to stand up against our enemy and to live faithfully. So what do we do in those moments where there's there's a certain intensity described here? It's not a a permanent long thing, but there's a short-term intensity that is designed to make you fail in that moment surrounding you, shooting these flaming darts, these flaming arrows at you, right? What do you do when life is suddenly and unexpectedly hard? Well, it urges you first to take up your shield of faith. And and this is what it looks like uh, for me. To take up that shield of faith means that I obey Jesus even when it doesn't look like I should. 
There will be times in your life where you know what to do to follow Jesus, but if you look at all the circumstances around you, you go, this seems like a really stupid thing to do. Like if I obey God right now, it's going to actually hurt me. It's going to actually cause me harm. What do I do in that moment? And that is to take up your shield of faith, to recognize that as a human being, we do not have a full view of eternity. That even if our worst comes to pass, even if standing, let's take it for instance, that you are in a job that requires you to lie or you will be fired, right? Hopefully none of you are ever put in this situation, but if you are, what do you do? In the short term, it might seem excusable, okay? It's just a little lie. It's just once, and I keep on providing for my family. But if I don't lie, well, then what? I'm out of a job. We're already living paycheck to paycheck. How am I going to pay for my family? Well, in those moments, it is not easy to live faithfully. You have an enemy fighting against you. What do you do? And that's when you take up the shield of faith. You go, you know what? Maybe in the short term, this is going to hurt badly. But if I am faithful, God will take care of me. In the end, it will be better to have lived in the truth than to have lied. And I don't see how that can be the case, but I'm going to take up my shield of faith. I'm going to trust the God who has proven himself trustworthy again and again and again, even if I don't personally right now see how it's going to work out. You take up the shield of faith and you stand those flaming arrows from the enemy. And also, what do you do? You take up the helmet of salvation. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, the, the attributes of the, of the armor that you would think, okay, that's a thing that you take up, are already on you, like the righteousness. And the things that you're like, oh, if you're a Christian, you have this, like salvation. Well, it's saying to take it up. What does that mean? Does that mean that you have to keep becoming saved? Well, here's a hint. No, that's, that's not what it means. If you are a Christian, if the Spirit has come into your life, you don't lose him. God will complete that work. So what does it mean to take on a helmet of salvation? Well, it is a reminder. It's kind of like having your feet shod with the gospel. It is a reminder that you are saved in Jesus. When all the flaming darts come on you and you're doubting whether you are actually saved, whether you have actually given your life to Jesus, it is a reminder that, no, you have been saved. No matter how short you fall from the life of a Christian right now, the promise is that God will continue working on you and continue to make you more like your son, Jesus. So in those moments where life gets difficult, where you realize your own inadequacy at following Jesus, you take that helmet of salvation, you put it on, and you recognize that you have been saved in Jesus, and he will not let you go. It's, it's describing these different challenges that come at us. These flaming darts that challenge our faith, we hold on to it. These flaming darts that challenge us at the point of our salvation, we cling to the gospel. And then this last one here, this one offensive weapon, right? What do we do to actually fight back against the enemy? We're given one weapon. So read with me in verse 18, or sorry, 17. Uh, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. How do we actually fight back against the enemy's schemes in order to live a faithful Christian life? Well, it's to, it's to keep coming back to this. We read it again and again and again. We read the whole Bible, whole books of the Bible again and again. We read it for depth. 
we put our life up to what the Bible says and we say, how am I not like this yet? And then we pray the Spirit to change us. We memorize the Scripture, right? The, this isn't a complicated thing. I know all, uh, essentially I'm preaching this whole text and, and the main takeaway is going to be your Bible and prayer. But at this point, Christian life isn't complicated. It's not easy necessarily, but it's not complicated. And we're given the tools to live it right here. Go to the Word. When you go to the Word, the very fact that it is God's Word given by the Spirit, remember, it is the sword of the Spirit. One of the fundamental truths that we believe about the Bible is that this is God's Word. God inspired human beings to write it, but each and every word of this is God's Word given through the Spirit. And when we read it as Christians, the Spirit, not only, not only do we read the Scripture, what I often look at it as the scripture reads us. In other words, the spirit takes his word and like a scalpel, in any area of our life that is not like Jesus, he begins with his word to cut it out and make us to fit until we look more and more like Jesus every day. And how does that happen? Well, we go to the word and we read the word. We seek to read it again and again and again to notice all the details of it, to understand what it's actually saying. And then we begin to apply it in our lives where we are convicted of sin, we in that moment repent and ask for God's help in living more faithfully afterwards. Where we are given encouragement, we take that encouragement to heart and thank God for it. Our lives become transformed just by reading God's word and applying it. This is our main tool to stand against the devil. This is our main weapon at fighting back, along with this. Um, in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Word and prayer. And notice they're connected. We are given the Word that is the sword of the Spirit. In addition, we are asked to pray in the Spirit. We shouldn't really separate reading of the word and prayer. Yes, there are times where we pray and we don't have the Bible with us. There's times we have the Bible and we're not consciously praying. But they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think how we put it in, in our table talk is it's spiritual breathing. Reading the word is listening to God speak to us. Praying is us responding to God. And when we respond to God, we can use his word. And when we pray, we can... Uh, and, and when we listen to God, we can pray as we meditatively read his word. It's, it's two sides of the same point. And that is our offensive weapons against our enemy, right? And the question is, okay, how do I pray? This is a question we get a lot, right? Like, how do, how do we pray? And this is why teaching a class on prayer is so difficult. You're like, okay, what do we do to pray? Do I pray like following a formula, right? Do I pray using the Psalms? Do I pray using historical prayers for the saints? Do I pray just in the moment what comes to my mind? Do I pray in the morning and the evening and at noontime? And the answer is yes. Yeah, you got it. Yes, absolutely. Right? Let me go back and point out one simple word here. And that word is all. Praying at all times with all prayer and all supplication. The idea is prayer in Scripture is, in some senses, your relationship with God. You're talking to and being talked to 
with God is that communication. If you think about your friendship or your relationship with human beings, like do we th- do we limit our conversations to some simple formula? Are there different ways we talk to people? Is there a quick phone call we make when we want them to pick up something from the store? Do we make sure to make time to sit down and talk with them for an extended period of time so we can catch up with them or get to know them better? Yes, all of these things. Pray at all times and all ways. This is why it's difficult to to teach a class on this is because prayer is kind of all-encompassing over your whole life. Scripture reading is all-encompassing over your whole life. Should I read one book deeply and slowly? Yes. Should I read the whole Bible again and again? Yes. Should I memorize a scripture so that I can say that as I'm walking? Yes. All, right. all these things, your Bible should be so, sat- or your, your life should be so saturated with prayer and with scripture that this marks who you are, right? This is what it looks like to live the Christian life, and this is how you stand firm against the enemy. And as you do this, your life will be transformed. So what's the takeaway for this? How do we actually do this this year? And this is my encouragement for you. One of the main lessons from Ephesians is not alone. You have your fellow Christians. Um, But two, it, it, it really is simple. How do I live a faithful life? Bible prayer. I read the Bible expecting God to speak to me. I read it prayerfully. Whenever I see my life not like what I see in the Bible, I pray repenting and asking for God's help. I think of the Bible as I go and as I walk. I memorize it so I can do that. I pray as I go throughout my day. I set a time time so that I can spend more time with God praying. I pray for other people and for myself, and I pray just talking with God listening to him, thanking him, praising him for the creation that I see around him, and just telling him about my day. Right? Once again, the Christian life isn't complicated. It's not always easy, but it's not complicated. Bible prayer, Bible prayer. When you do this, you put on the armor of God and you begin to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Right? And that's my encouragement and prayer for you this year. I don't pray necessarily for you guys to do big, earth-shattering things, although, God, that's that awesome. Instead, my prayer is that in your ordinary lives, you love one another well so that you can, and, and because of your love for God. And I pray that you are saturated with the word and with prayer that your lives are transformed by it, right? In such a way that your neighbors and your coworkers and your family see your lives and are attracted to the gospel because of it. And if we do that this year, as many of you have done last year, what will happen is that your coworkers and your friends and your family members, even some who have been resistant for years to the gospel, will be wooed by the Spirit through your lives as you begin to share them the gospel and the cause for your transformation. And they themselves will begin to be transformed. Little by little, person to person, God's kingdom advances. With that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite those of you who are doing communion to come on up so we can do that today. Father, uh, I pray for us this year that we would seek to live quiet, faithful lives for the glory of Jesus, and that you would use that to radically transform the people around us, that they'd be attracted to the gospel that has changed us, and they'd be attracted to the Jesus who is our source of every spiritual blessing and that they would join the family of Christ as well. I pray that for us this year, that you would show us the lives that you are changing through us, that you would show us 
the work that you are doing through us and that you give us the endurance and the strength to stand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.